Woo. <laughs> Thank you, brother Tim. Appreciate that. Better not choke after a prayer like that, huh? What well, won't be his fault? <laughs> Let me invite you to open your uh, Bible to Mark chapter two. Mark chapter two. We begin a new chapter. I know we're just going at an incredible pace. To some of you. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 today, and I'm going to take a moment before we begin this morning to read our passage, reading from the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came out, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed. And glorify God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of God. May he who has ears to hear the word, uh, hear what the word says to us this morning. Let's ask for help as we look into these verses. Jesus, we come dependent on you now as Tim has already prayed. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes, that he would open our ears, that we can see and hear uh, you, Jesus, as the glorious Christ. Um, show us Christ, Holy Spirit, in these verses and draw us to strengthen faith or beginning faith, whatever we need today. Let your word be the sovereign scalpel that it describes itself as and quicken us all, quicken me and my throat and my mind, Jesus. We entrust ourselves to you now and ask in your name. Amen. It's on the table. Thank you. Oh, it's on the other side of the table. Murphy's Law hard at work today. <laughs> so our sense of guilt sometimes is more than we can bear and must be dealt with. For example, the New York Daily News reported that in 1941, a 10-year-old boy and his friend eating at Lamb's Grill in downtown Salt Lake City realized that they didn't have enough money to pay for their meal. And so they quietly ducked out of the restaurant, leaving their bill unpaid, which amounted to one dollar. 
In 2014, 73 years later, one of the boys who had skipped out on that bill, now 83 years old, still plagued by a guilty conscience, sent his daughter back to Lamb's Grill to give the server $5 to cover to the 73-year-old check that was unpaid. The man himself, too embarrassed to go in, waited in the car outside. That kind of guilty conscience is what Charles Spurgeon describes. He says, a man infected with a deadly disease is never at ease whatever clothes he may put on or at whatever tables he may feast, he is still unhappy because he has the arrows of death sticking in him. Such is a man conscious of sin. Nothing can please him. Nothing can ease him till his sin is removed. A conscience like that seems to be infecting the paralyzed man in Mark's account this morning. And we'll see that being paralyzed isn't his only condition, nor is it his worst condition. There's something far more deadly affecting this man than just the inability to walk. And maybe that same condition affects you today, a conscience that is riddled with guilt and that you don't know how to get rid of. What should we do with a conscience like that? How do we ease a guilty conscience? Well, we'll see the answer in Mark's account of this paralyzed man, and there are two parts of his account that I want to show you today. The first part, we see the persistent faith of the paralytic. Seeing the determinant, the determined faith of this paralyzed man, Jesus forgives his sin. Uh, and let me point out three things about his persistent faith to you. The first is, is the place where this event took place. Uh, it says, uh, th- this answers the where question for us. And it says in verse 1, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Up in chapter 1, we had read, uh, and when he, uh, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Uh, Christ, before this event in chapter 2, has been traveling throughout this area, uh, teaching and preaching and healing and casting out demons. This whole region of Galilee, he's now returned to Capernaum, which he has adopted as his hometown. Which microphone am I on? On this one? Okay. Um, They've returned to their home base, and Mark tells us even further that Jesus is at home. Uh, Likely the same house that we referred to in chapter 1, the home of Peter and Andrew, where Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law, where the whole town assembled in the evening at the door. Uh, Jesus likely is staying here with Peter, and that's why it says he's at home. Verse 2 goes on to say, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. When the report of Jesus gets out, uh, he's mobbed, besieged inside the place he was staying. Uh, archaeologists say that this home, homes of that era, uh, homes like Peter's, consisted of a central court 
that was surrounded by other dwellings. Uh, one of these dwellings was probably no larger than 15 by 15. That's, that's smaller than a lot of your master bedrooms. Um, and this space is packed with people who likely spilled out into that outer courtyard, all straining at the door and the windows to hear what Jesus is teaching. Try to picture yourself in a room like that. I remember I used to ride a bus when we lived in Dallas. Sometimes quite crowded people standing close together in the center aisle. And maybe you've ridden a bus like that. Or you've ridden a commuter train. Or even the airport tram sometimes gets jam-packed. And there's people standing everywhere. And they've got their luggage with them. And, and you're next to some guy who doesn't smell so hot. It's got garlic on his breath. And... And, and even the city bus in the summertime, the air is stale and you smell other people's body odor and feet. And it, that's what you have, would have experienced in the room like this. The, the only windows face the courtyard, not the street. So there's no fresh air blowing into this place. It's, it's hot. It's, it's stuffy. And regardless, people cram to hear Jesus teach about the good news of God's kingdom. The same good news of His kingdom that He announced in chapter 1. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is, this is the place. This is the setting of where this event occurs. And then notice second, the, the paralytic himself. Look at verse 3. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Four men carrying their paralyzed friend enter this outer courtyard of Peter's home and, and attempt to squeeze their way through the crowd. Maybe a few kind souls were there that, that got out of the way or stepped aside, but verse 4 says that mostly they got angry looks from people who were unwilling to let them through. Look what it says. And, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd. That doesn't deter them though. I mean, they had heard about Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. They'd heard about the healings that took place at the door of that house that later, later that evening. And they'd heard about the synagogue where he cast out the demon. And perhaps they'd even heard about the, the leper who he had cleansed. Your friend is in desperate shape. There's, there's no way they're going to let this opportunity pass by. Jesus can heal you. We must get to him. And one of the men, undeterred by the crowd, suddenly cries, The roof! Let's try the roof! It says in verse 4, They, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay there would have been a stone stairway outside the house that led up to the roof. And uh, the roof was used for working, sometimes sleeping when it got really warm. That's where the breeze was, after all. Um, but this roof was not a flimsy thing. There were beams that ran across uh, that sat on top of the, of the walls. And then running the other direction were, were sticks and branches 
smaller sticks and branches. And through these they would weave other sticks to create a thatched roof. And then on top of the thatch was a layer of hardened mud, of course supplied wet, but they had a, some kind of roller in that era to, to roll it over the top, much as you've seen construction workers use uh, a roller. But this obviously much smaller and more primitive. That would remove the air and the mud. That would create a level, level surface. They had, to, they had to retreat that every year before winter uh, to keep out the winter rains. And so getting through the roof, it's no small undertaking. This is serious work. And it's all driven by their determination and their persistent faith that Jesus could heal their friend. Imagine being there in that stuffy, smelly room listening to Jesus and you start hearing a pounding on the ceiling above you. And then all of a sudden, dirt starts to fall from the ceiling. First, small dust particles, and then little larger pieces. Of course, everyone is distracted at that point. It's like, it's like us being here watching a wasp fly around the room on a Sunday morning. And then, and then there's a hole in the roof. And daylight starts to poke its way through, and then you see somebody's face up in a hole, looking down into the room. And the hole keeps getting bigger and bigger. And of course, Peter is shouting about the damage to his roof. You know, maybe even threatening to come up there and cut off somebody's ears. <laughs> you know how good he was with a sword. On and on they dig and pull. And now larger chunks of dried mud are falling to the floor. And the hole gets bigger and bigger. And finally, there's a hole so large that the entire bed could, could fit through like a stretcher. And they begin to carefully lower him into the room. And of course, people have to get out of the way and crowd even closer together to make room for the bed as it comes and finally rests on the floor in front of them. And this is the paralytic's entrance into this scene. And this determined faith from, from the paralytic and his friends lead to a third thing, which is the pronouncement. He pronounces him forgiven. Look in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, these men had demonstrated their faith in him. They, they had heard the reports about him and acted on them uh, that he had the power to heal their friend. Someone commented, Jesus recognizes that only a tenacious faith would have led these men to go to such trouble. And verse 5 goes on to say, it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son doesn't mean that he was a child. It was a term of endearment. It meant to bring assurance to this man. But more importantly, son was a term that someone in authority would use with someone under him, as in a covenant of that era. I'll be a father to you and you will be my son. 
Son reveals that Jesus is someone with authority and has the inherent right to do what comes next. And he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, why does he say that? Why doesn't he say, Son, you're healed? Does he say, Son, your sins are forgiven because sin caused his illness? I really don't believe so. Sin might have had something to do with this man's problem, but we can't say that with certainty. The New Testament reveals that the level of our sickness or our suffering does not correspond to the level of our sin. I say that again, it's really, really important. The level of our suffering uh, or our sickness does not correspond to the level of our sin. If our sin or suffering was equal, if our suffering or, or was equal to the level of our sin, why we'd all be dead, wouldn't we? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you once were alienated and hostile in mind. Colossians 1.21 If our sickness or suffering corresponded to our sin, we'd all be dead. And Jesus said to his men in John 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man in John 9 is born blind not because he sinned, but so that God's might would be seen and bring glory to God. And, and for the same reason, Jesus doesn't say, Son, your sins are forgiven because sin was the cause of his paralysis. I think Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven because sin was the man's deeper problem and a condition far more serious than his paralysis. The main problem was not his legs. It was his heart. And it seems his heart was weighed down by guilt. Because in Matthew's account uh, of this event, Jesus says, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. So Charles Spurgeon concludes, I gather therefore from the fact that Jesus said to the man, Take heart, my son, that he was very greatly depressed in spirit and unhappy. Jesus chooses to heal his greatest problem, the problem of his sinful heart. Friend, have you heard those words? Son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. Because like this man in our account, the human race's greatest problem is not their various diseases. As dreadful as those diseases 
are the human race's greatest problem is the guilt of their sin. Listen to Dr. R.C. Sproul describe this guilt. He says, 25 years ago, a psychiatrist who had a very prosperous practice in South Florida asked me to come on his staff. He offered me what at that time would have been a princely salary to join his team. I said, I don't have a degree in psychiatry. Why do you want me? He said, R.C., 95% of my clients do not need a psychiatrist. They need a priest because their lives are being destroyed by unresolved guilt. Do you have the assurance that your sins are forgiven? Have you turned your life over to Jesus Christ? Are you relying on Him and His payment for sin on the cross? Have you relied on Him as your substitute? As the one who bore your sin in His body? As the one who died the death you deserved to die? Listen, if you have, if you've trusted in Him as as your substitute, as your payment for sin, Listen to the assurance that the Word of God gives you. From Psalm 32, uh, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. From Isaiah 38, In love you've delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. And then from the prophet Micah, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. From Ephesians, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And finally, from Hebrews, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so Christ says to you, if you're trusting in His atoning death on the cross, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart, daughter. Your sins are forgiven. Because of the determined faith of the paralytic and his friends, Jesus graciously says, Son, your sins are forgiven. But these same words don't settle so well with some of the people who are present in the room. And that's what we discover in the second part of Mark's account, where we see the bold declaration of Jesus. 
Jesus heals this paralyzed man and reveals his authority to do this, to forgive sins. Let me point out four things about this bold declaration. And the first thing that we see is the debate. These words, son, your sins are forgiven, have sparked an eternal debate in the scribes who were there. Look at verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We uh, read about these scribes first back in chapter 1. Uh, they were experts in the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses. They were the theological heavyweights of the day. And they were also keepers of Israel's traditions. The practices, not written down, but passed down orally. Uh, things to be kept in addition to the written word of God. And one man describes them like this. They saw their task as establishing clear-cut guidelines and boundaries. They decided what was acceptable and unacceptable to God in all spheres of life so that the people might live in accord with God's will. And operating from that role, they debated in, in their hearts and determined that Jesus' words to this man were blasphemy. He had said irreverent and profane and ungodly things. And the penalty for speaking like this is death according to the law of Moses. And notice the reason they believed his words for blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were absolutely correct. And that was the whole point. Several places in the Old Testament affirm that, including this one from Isaiah 43, where the Lord says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And so when the scribes hear Jesus say, Son, your sins are forgiven, they don't hear Christ's gracious response to a paralyzed man, they hear Jesus claiming to be God, but only God can forgive sins. I was listening to Dr. R.C. Sproul this week, and he said that often in the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and some other religions, they make the claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, these scribes certainly understood this as a claim to be God. At least they got it. And this is what's going on in their hearts. The debate in their hearts. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this leads to the disclosure Jesus discloses to the whole room what these men are thinking. Look at verse 8. And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, <coughs> excuse me, why do you question these things in, your, in their hearts? In your hearts. He's not really just, he's not merely reading their faces. He actually knows what they're thinking. Yet, 
One more indication that He's God. Because only God knows the hearts of men. As Samuel said, uh, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesus doesn't want this to go unnoticed. And so He discloses to the whole room what is at stake here. Did He have authority to forgive sins or not? At verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. I mean, who knows? I mean, who knows whether that happened? It was on the inside. Who could, who could challenge that? much harder thing to say is rise, take up your bed and walk. That would be visible to everyone. The proof would be right in front of them. And Jesus wants to bring this out so that everyone in the room knows. No secret this time. No secret here. Do I have authority to forgive sins or not? And this leads then to the declaration. Now see, that's a P and it doesn't, that's left over from the last slide. So if you're a note taker, just say the declaration. He declares who he is to the crowd. Look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. He calls himself Son of Man 70 times uh, in the New Testament. But what, is it, what does that mean? We also use the phrase and see the phrase Son of God, another title of Christ. And that draws attention to the deity or divinity of Christ. Son of God emphasizes His divine nature, that He is God. And so many conclude, well then, Son of Man must emphasize His humanity, His human nature. It must stress Christ's solidarity with us as humans, but that's not what Son of Man means. means. Dr. Sproul, Dr. Sproul and others have pointed out Jesus borrows this phrase from the book of Daniel. Listen to what Daniel says and listen to what this Son of Man is like in Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, Daniel writes, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom won that shall not be destroyed. Son of man doesn't emphasize, emphasize Jesus' humanity by no means. Son of man, as he calls himself, uh, describes Jesus as one chosen by God the Father and given authority to rule heaven and earth for all eternity. <coughs> Again, listen to Dr. Sproul explain this title. Who is the Son of Man? The book of Daniel describes the appearance and character of the Son of Man. He's a heavenly being appointed by the Ancient of Days to be the Lord of the earth and to receive the kingdom forever. The Son of Man, having descended from heaven, returns there and is enthroned in glory. 
So when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he was not practicing humility. He was saying, I've descended from heaven. I'm heavenly, not from this earth. This title was pregnant with theological significance concerning Jesus' deity and office. That was why Jesus used it here. He wanted to show his divine authority to forgive sin. He doesn't try to keep it a secret. Openly declares who he is, the Son of Man, God's anointed King descended from heaven with the authority to, to forgive sins. It is a title loaded with implications. I'm the Son of Man. And to prove it, that He has authority to forgive sins, Jesus proceeds next. I hope I got the next one right. The demonstration. So He goes from the declaration to the demonstration. He demonstrates that He has authority to forgive sins. Look at verse 10 again. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. His declaration that He's the Son of Man is backed up here um, by visible and tangible proof. If Jesus could say and do the harder thing, raise up the paralytic and restore His ability, surely He could do the easier thing too, forgive the man's sins. And by this visible and tangible demonstration of His power, He proves to the scribes and everyone present that He is the Son of Man and He has authority to forgive sins. This is how we know that Jesus can take away the guilt of our sin. Only God can forgive sin and that's exactly who He is. And as the Son of Man, God's anointed King, He has the right and the power and authority to forgive sin. He and he alone has that right. This is why he said so importantly these common words, these words that are so familiar. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is why Peter said, and there is no salvation, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We hear this bold declaration uh, first, and then we see Jesus demonstrate and prove that He is the Son of Man with the authority to forgive sins by raising this man up. The bold declaration of Christ. So, what do we do with the guilty conscience? That conscience weighed down by the guilt of sin? What can ease the weight of that conscience? 
that perhaps you feel pressing down on you this morning. And we've seen the answer in the two parts of this account by Mark. Uh, the first, the part, the persistent faith of the paralytic. And like this paralyzed man, we must take our guilty conscience to Christ, confess our sin to Him, and trust in His atoning death on the cross. It is then that we hear the words, Son, your sins are forgiven. Second, we saw the bold declaration of Christ, and we can rest assured because of this, that our guilt has been removed because Jesus has the authority to forgive sin as the Son of Man. By way of application, friends, if you have a guilty conscience today pressing down on you, if you feel the weight of sin, I plead with you to run to Christ, to turn away from your sin, to forsake your sin, turn to Jesus and trust in His atoning death, His payment for sin. There are several people in the room who would love to talk to you about that. Myself, one of the elders, an elder's wife. You could talk to any one of us. Even the deacon board would be happy to talk to you about that. If you don't know for sure whether you've trusted in Jesus in this way, Second, for those of you who have trusted in Christ, for those of you who still struggle with a guilty conscience, and there are many of us, hear the words of Scripture. One of those six passages I, I showed you Previously, your sin has been buried in Challenger Deep, the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean. It is, I forget how many miles underneath the ocean, metaphorically speaking, of course. Nobody is going to dredge it up. Least of all, your heavenly Father. He has thrust your sin behind His back. It's not that He's forgotten. God who knows all things, of course, knows what you've done. But because of Christ's payment for sin, covering what you've done, He puts it away and does not hold it against you because of Jesus. And when He looks at you, he doesn't see what you've done. Do you know what he sees now? The perfect righteousness of his son clothing you. Wow. Third, some of the people around you really need to hear this. Really need to hear this that Christ 
can remove the guilt of their sin. And they too can hear, Son, your sins are forgiven. And you and I are called to share that with those people around us who have yet to have this huge burden of guilt lifted off of them. Let's pray. Savior, thank you. We want to worship you as the Son of Man. The one who the Father has handed over all power and authority. You who reign and rule this universe. And we are grateful that you have every right to forgive sin. All those who come to you will not be turned away. You promise this in your word. Everyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. That means you won't cast us out and you won't cast our loved ones and friends out when they come to you. Ah, We are grateful that you have buried our sin in the depth of the ocean. We're grateful that you don't hold it against us because of Christ. Help us to rejoice Help us to wallow in this great news and help us to be faithful to share it with the people around us. Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.